Brothers and sisters, I hope that you have your Bible or that you have a worship guide that you were able to receive when you arrived. And if so, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through the end of chapter 4, verse 6. Isaiah 3, 1 through 4, 6. Back in 1919, the poet William Butler Yeats wrote a poem on the second coming. And Yeats wrote, one of the, the, the keys to this poem, the second coming, was how the, the, the tensions of our world were continually seeming to fall apart, were seeming to fall into disarray. And it's ironic that he wrote this, yes, right on the heels of World War I, but also with the 20th century, the most bloody and violent century mankind has ever known, much of it still to come. And what Yeats wrote was that the center could not hold, that the, the, the securities, the structures, the safety nets that hold us together as a people were foundering. And we're beginning to shake and fall apart. But William Butler Yeats is not the first one that recognized this. God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, reminds us in chapter 3 of the fact that all that we might hold for security in this life could crumble and of the fact of the hope that we have in Christ who is perfectly secure and who is our hope. Have you felt that your life, that your world at times is crumbling? That the security that you hold dear is falling apart? Well, Isaiah 3 is for you. But Isaiah 3 is not for you in the sense that you get some kind of hallmark answer of, well, it'll be all right. But Isaiah 3 is for you and for me to show us the majesty and the might of our God who must clear the field that we may grow. So Isaiah 3 and 4 invites us to see that as we watch our once secure world crumble, our hope must rest solely and supremely on the promised coming reign of Jesus Christ. As we watch our once secure world crumble, our hope must rest solely and supremely on the coming reign of Christ. We're going to see two acts of judgment And then an act of wonderful grace. Two acts of judgment, one act of grace. Isaiah 3, beginning in verse 1, it reads, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread 
and all support of water. Let's pause right here. What you see is the Lord is removing in His judgment upon the people of Jerusalem and Judah. He is removing from them, starting to remove the very foundational pillars to their safety as a people, to their security as a people. What we saw in Isaiah 2 was that the people of Judah and Jerusalem had given themselves to uh, idolatry against God, to rebellion against Him, and then that spiritual idolatry, what flows from downstream from that is the collapse of all that they hold secure. So bread and water is no more, but follow along in verse 2, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable." Not only has the Lord removed bread and water, but the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, all of these are shrinking back. And what is rising up are boys and infants, those who do not have the capability or the virtue to be able to lead God's people, and the anarchy that falls upon them is found. The people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, the despised to the honorable. Anarchy has fallen upon Jerusalem and Judah. Now, as we study our Bibles, we must be very careful against drawing any kind of divine connections between uh, Old Testament Israel and present-day United States of America. As I studied this, I, I started to think, wow, okay, like thinking of this idea of this poem by William Butler Yeats and the fact that we have seen so much decency and so much uh, virtue erode on the part of those who would be cast to lead us as a people. But that is not what the Lord is saying in a national sense for us as Americans. Israel was a theocracy set apart by God. What that means is it had a harmony of ethnic identity. This was a people who were originally established by God ethnically. They worshiped God because he had redeemed them out of Egypt, and they had this governmental life where they were set apart by God as a witness to the world around them. And this is not what America is, nor what America was designed to be. So what we take from this is not a warning against America, but a warning against us as the people of God. If we allow ourselves to neglect obedience to God's Word and our hearts to be untethered in affection for those things that would pull us away from our, our God, this is the dangerous game we are playing. And so what we see is we see these leaders fall by the wayside. And you see the moral collapse of the people of Jerusalem and Judah. This is an invitation for us to look and see, to make sure we are not idolizing anything for security apart from our God. Do you realize the next time you roll your eyes at the news that you hear coming out of Washington... That this is a kindness of God that you can grab hold of to prayerfully remind yourself that your hope does not rest in the halls of power in D.C., but in the throne room of God. 
We must hear the warning that Isaiah 3 shows us that God will stop at nothing to remove the pillars of security that His people trust in apart from Him. God knows it is far more healthy for our souls if we trust His Word and pursue obedience to Him, even if it means persecution that we face as the church. It's far more safe for us to live in that than to live in freedom and in liberty and for us to say all the right things but to live in the idolatry believing that our security and our strength is found elsewhere apart from Him. So Isaiah 3 shows us the erosion of both hope in men and women of God. Look at verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. Do you see this? The, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are so, uh, are, are so um, desirous for any kind of good leadership that a man finds another man with a nice cloak and says, you lead us. And he will not do so. He will not lead the people. And verse 8 sums it all up. For Jerusalem has stumbled... Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. That is the summation of it. Once again, downstream from the spiritual idolatry of Isaiah 2, verses 6 to 21, is the fact that their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, and in their lives they are defying His glorious presence. Imagine you're in the front row at the Jordan's IMAX theater, 55-foot high screen. You've got sound reverberating in the walls around you. You've even got the, uh, the vibrating uh, speakers and uh, mechanisms in your chair that cause you to feel the weight and the vibrations of such a movie that you might be watching. And imagine you're watching this and the room is just filled with the scene of it. And you eventually, halfway through, you turn to the person beside you and say, I don't, I don't see it. I, I can't see the movie. I can't hear it. Let's leave. Why are we sitting here? God is giving this as an illustration for what the people of Jerusalem and Judah are doing as they're defying His glorious presence. God is saying, I have created you. I, I give you the sunrises and the sunsets that you see every day. I give you the food that feeds you. I give you the water that you drink. I am the one who has redeemed you. I provide the sacrifices for your sins. I provide the rescue for your redemption. And in all of this, you defy me and you turn away from me. In verse 9, he says, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Touching this, this, this point of, of national identity and national remembrance on the part of the people of Judah, he references Sodom. The men of Sodom were etched into the collective memory of the Israelites as an example of blatant, unabashed, proud sin against God. Now God tells the men of Jerusalem and Judah that their blatant disobedience to Him is no different than the men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Where do our faces bear witness against us? Where might our faces be prone to bear witness against us? 
It's found in when we discount God's word. Even when it contradicts our culture that we are surrounded with. God's word calls us to be clear on what it teaches about human anthropology and human sexuality and how God designs and creates us. Being out of step with our contemporary moment, but faithfulness to God demands this. When we discount God's word for the sake of cultural expedience, we defy God's presence. Another example where our face might bear witness against us is in our corporate witness when it comes to where our hope rests. We say our hope rests in God, but sometimes in our politics, we seem to reveal that our hope rests elsewhere. The term evangelical, by pretty much any broad definition, we would be described as evangelicals, as a people. We believe the evangelical good news of Jesus Christ, and yet it's been reduced to a political term in our communication, in our culture, in our, in our, in our societal life together, in our national life together, and, and evangelicals that we see on the news are understandably oftentimes quite outrageous. That's how they get on the news. But we as a people must be careful to not to fall into a trap that would betray a false sense of security that is grounded in electoral outcomes. Make no mistake, we must pray and work for causes which God's Word commends us, the cause of life, causes of care for the immigrant in our midst, but we must not be given to a mindset that seems to say that our hope is found elsewhere apart from God, because in doing so, we defy the very presence of God. Another example, if I can be honest, if I have concern that I share with many other pastor friends of mine. That's just a reality of pastoring in a pandemic. That's about the spread of kind of an individualized understanding of the Christian life. Here's what I mean. One of the great concerns I have as we hopefully come out of the pandemic surrounds our corporate attitudes towards worship. I want to be clear that I understand and support those who have to stay away at this time for health reasons for themselves or for health reasons of those that they live with or are near with and must be regular close contact with. That's not what I'm getting at here, but my concern is that we as a people, as Lord willing, hopefully as we continue to come out of the pandemic, that we will make sure not not to shrug off corporate worship together and the gathering of the saints to the praise of God's name, but that we will make it a priority gathering together to testify of God's goodness and to hear from His Word. And we take hope, we, all these warnings, we take them seriously, but we must take them with an eye towards introspection. May we take hope in God's preservation of the righteous. So you read verse 9, the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. And the Lord says, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. And then this odd statement in verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Brothers and sisters, this is our call to a pilgrim mindset. As we sail through the rough waters of life set apart in faithfulness to God, let us take verse 10 to heart and trust in God's promise that the righteous remnant will arrive in safe harbor. 
But those who do, do not sail on in righteousness must hear the warning of verses 11 and 12. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Now, you might look at verse 12 and think, hmm, what's he saying here? Women rule over them, as if that's a form of judgment. Well, this passage has already brought forth controversial stuff enough. Let's add one more. It's possible that this reference to women and children leading is because a, a sweeping majority of the men of Judah and Jerusalem lost their lives in battle with the Assyrians. It was the Assyri- Assyrians who would come in and invade the people. And if you take the example of chapter 4, verse 1, as many as seven out of eight men lost their lives. But make no mistake, there's an understood sound health to society that is found in virtuous male leadership that is lacking in Isaiah 3. This is not saying that women, this is not saying that women have no prosperous, important role in a healthy society of God's people. For example, just take a look at Proverbs 31. Proverbs, a woman described in Proverbs 31 is to be commended as she models wisdom. Wisdom in the home and raising children, but also wisdom with city leaders that is to be admired by all as she is in the courts of the city, as well as a brilliant intellect as she engages in commerce. And builds her business. But what God is showing the people of Judah and Jerusalem is that leadership amongst them is crumbling for the very fact that they have hoped in leadership apart from God. And lastly, as we consider God's sweeping hand on the societal safety nets of Jerusalem and Judah, observe as He prosecutes His case against the injustices committed by those who abuse their power and authority over the poor. Look at verses 13 to 15. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. So pause here. The Lord uh, promises to judge those who are in authority, those who are high up, the elite of the people. Because they have devoured the vineyards that the poor were working in. And they had taken their spoil for themselves, neglecting justice and righteousness. And the Lord says in verse 15, What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. I hear God's heart for justice and righteousness. And so if you, if you hear this and... You learn more about Christianity and God is revealed in the Bible and God is revealed in Isaiah. I encourage you not to uh, give in to just basic reductionistic thoughts of, of the God that we find in the Bible. He is a God who in one sense we see something said or something alluded to that seems to harken back to being out of date and old-fashioned and even harmful in some eyes. But in another sense, we see him in verses 13 to 15, heralding out the responsibility of justice on behalf of the poor that is dramatically condemning of his people. What we see here is that God demands that hearts be consecrated to him. And in their consecration to him, their hearts will be made full of love for one another. 
Now look at verse 15. Look at the end of verse 15. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And then you look over at the beginning of verse of chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. This language, the Lord God of hosts, this name for God at the beginning and the end of this section, it indicates an innumerable amount of heavenly bodies, of angelic beings who stand ready to exercise God's authority over his creation, and in this instance, even over his people. God removes the power of the structural safety nets that his people might cling to in order that he might bring them to himself. But he doesn't just remove these false senses of security. He removes false appearances that we see. Look at this shift that occurs in God's attention in verse 16 and following. The grievance against the daughters of Zion and then look at the shocking judgment of verse 17. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, haughty, arrogant. Some of them might have been haughties, other H-O-T-T, whatever, but they're haughty, they're arrogant, they're prideful. They walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. I don't know what that means. I would assume just kind of pridefully sauntering along, arrogant as if they are in control of everything, and yet they are not. For yet again, their hearts are far from the God that they profess to worship. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the, daughter, of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Now, some of this is metaphorical, but let's not miss the point. God turns the arrogant concern that we may have with appearance. God turns it upside down, empties it out, and leaves it in its shame. And this, isn't, this, this is in one sense appearance as we present ourselves to others, But in another sense, this is appearance as we project a form of holiness, a form of righteousness that is not true of us. Are we not not prone to be far more concerned with outward appearance than internal holiness? The question that we ask ourselves oftentimes is not, how, how much do I give myself to matters of studying God's Word and of praying and growing in holiness, but how much do I project that? To those around me. God says, you will be found out. The problem wasn't that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were making false offerings, but the problem is they were making right offerings from a false heart. And just as the Lord has shown us that He can rattle the cages of those safety nets that we cling to, He even shows us that with our appearances. This is where Christianity has a unique worldview. It can be quite sobering, but hopefully sanctifying for a woman to grow from youth to the wrinkles that come with age. It can be quite sobering and hopefully sanctifying for a woman to transition from young and physically fit to older and feeling the effects of an aging body. Sisters in our church family, may I urge you to make it a prayer for yourself. That as your body ages, pursue a heart in line with what the Apostle Peter urged in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. What if we all resolved 
sisters, brothers, all of us, for every one look in the mirror, we took two looks into our soul and allowed God's Word to work within us, knowing that as the body perhaps is wasting away or as the budget is shrinking up and we just don't have the money to, to buy the, the nicer clothes or the nicer uh, items that we would like in life, knowing as, as we are not adorned outwardly as much as we would like, that God is adorning us inwardly by His merciful Spirit at work within us. God is willing to rip away the external that he may work in the internal. And this is an act of love on his part. It is an act of judgment and justice, but it is an act of love as he opens our eyes to our need. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. And then verse 24 through 26, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. It is as if the women of Jerusalem and Judah were little girls yet again, playing grown-up. They had their little Fisher-Price kitchen. They put stuffed animals around the table and served tea, all the while playing make-believe. They were playing make-believe spiritually in Jerusalem and Judah. Yet as the men would find their hope in government to be crumbling, now the women would be found, would find their hope in a husband Go without. Verse 1 of chapter 4, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Do you see the connection here of chapter 4, verse 1, with chapter 3, verses 6 and 7? In chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, remember a brother grabs another man and says, you lead us. You have a cloak. And in chapter 4, verse 1, these seven women come up to one man and say, will you marry us? Will you provide for us? We have no security. People are destroyed, demoralized, and wrecked. And that might not be where you have been. I doubt any of us have been in a position where we were with seven other people clamoring for a spouse. Or in a position where we were grabbing that person beside us saying, you must lead us because you have a nice cloak. But we've been in that position where we felt as if God took a sickle and just wiped out all that was there, cutting way too short and leaving us nothing to grab onto in hope. Maybe it came after you got the sudden, unexpected pink slip and firing from work. Maybe it came after you got the sudden, unexpected breakup from a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it came after you got the sudden unexpected news that the 20, 30, 40 years you thought you had left might be 20, 30 days, weeks, but the disease you have is far more serious than thought. It's always dangerous to ascribe these things to God's judgment, 
But it's always wise to know that God is graciously and kindly working His heart, working His will out in our hearts that we might see His sufficiency and we might trust Him when that news comes. But what do we trust in? If the land gets clear-cut, if the men of Judah and Jerusalem get wiped out by the Assyrians, if the people are told that they will have no hope, where does our hope rest? Our hope rests in the present grace of God and the future grace of God. It is as if the scene goes black at the end of verse 1 of chapter 4 and then picks up in a new day in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Here's what Isaiah is doing for us. You see verse 2, he starts out in that day. But look back in verse 18, he says, in that day the Lord will take away. But in this day, the branch of the Lord will rise. Isaiah is wanting us to see the multifaceted picture of the fact that judgment does come upon uh, uh, the, the world, upon his people at the day of the Lord. But judgment is met by, is followed up by mercy. All that seems to have been taken away is renewed and restored in a better, more full manner. So in that day, the branch of the Lord this small branch, this small, like a tiny weed starting to grow in a crack in a parking lot. But it was not a tiny weed in a parking lot. Scripture tells us the branch of the Lord is Jesus Christ Himself. It's as if a tiny baby born in a manger off the beaten path with little to no fanfare amongst those who were nearest to the manger. But in that day, a new and redemptive, glorious work of God, a beautiful work of God, shall come about, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors or of the remnant of Israel. God has his eyes on the remnant. Remember the righteous of verse 10, the righteous that it will be well with them. What is the hope of the remnant who survives Isaiah 3? As the government crumbles, as appearances are Wiped out as all that we hold dear is pulled away. Look at the hope of verse 3. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have uh, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. He who is left in Zion will be called holy, as verse 4 says. The Lord, as He wipes out in judgment, He builds up in mercy. We who have been recorded for life, the Lord, He washes away any filth of our sin and cleanses it from a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning or of purging. I want you to see something else. As we prepare to read verse 5, remember verse 1? The Lord is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah. And then verse 18, in that day the Lord will take away the finery of anklets and headbands and the crescents and all of that. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord will 
create. Over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That is a picture of God's work. He takes away, he takes away, and he creates anew. He doesn't give you a new leaf to turn over. He gives us new life to live. He doesn't tell us it will be okay as we try to grit our, uh, our teeth and bear it in this life. He sustains us in this life with creation of a hope in the next life. The Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Do you remember a cloud by day and a smoke and a fire by night? That's how the Lord led his people out of, in the Exodus. As he led them through the wilderness his presence with them. And that will be referenced again later in Isaiah. And what, the, what Isaiah is showing us, what the Lord is showing us through Isaiah, is that, the, is that God's final and perfect presence with his people will be uh, 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 inaugurated forevermore as he establishes his coming reign over Mount Zion, over that spiritual Mount Zion that we will dwell in. And then you see for all the glory... Uh, um, over all the glory, there will be a canopy. That word for canopy, you might say, okay, canopy like a tent. It actually means like a bridal canopy, like a groom and, and a bride coming together in perfect security and perfect peace. And so the imagery here that Isaiah wants us to see, make no, no mistake about it, as the women in verse 1 are clamoring for a husband, he's showing us the perfect husband of the people of God will be Jesus Christ himself. And he's showing us in verse 6, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. He's showing us that those of us who cling for and seek out leadership that we can trust and that we can run to and hope in in this life, Jesus Christ will be the one who protects us from the storm and is our refuge and our shade. Isaiah is telling us lovingly that where God cleans out the idols that we cling to, those of us who are His, He creates a new, not new idols, but a new hope in the perfect and full and complete loving reign of Jesus Christ. He will reign on His Mount Zion and his people will enjoy his presence. For there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. William Butler Yeats wrote that the center cannot hold. The tensions and forces of this life are ripping apart too quickly. What is it that the Lord might be removing from your hands and from your heart? What is it that you might be clinging to so closely that you risk losing sight of that perfect presence of Christ and the assurance that we will be with Him for all of eternity? 
Jonathan Edwards described it as if there are streams of love flowing for the people of God to dwell on, to drink from. And they flow into rivers of love by which we can see the unfolding of the merciful love of God for us to be enveloped in it. And the rivers of love of God flow into the mighty sea of the love of God that beckons us to come and swim in it and drink in it and enjoy the sunlight of Jesus' reign throughout all of eternity. And then he turns and he asks us, what is so dear to us in this life that we would neglect an eternity swimming in the oceans of God's love under his perfect protection, knowing him intimately as our God who welcomes us, not in denial of who we are, but embrace of His mercy that has been poured out upon us. Won't we be willing to lose in this life that we may gain the love of Christ today and for the life to come? Let's pray. God, as the pillars of this life crumble for us, help us to hope in the eternal, secure, sure reign of Christ. Lord, help us to be a people that are constantly setting our eyes and our hearts on that branch of the Lord that branch of the Lord in whom we will find shade and security. God, be merciful to us and help us to look and live in Christ. And it is in Him we pray. Amen.